This podcast was created and is hosted by a young survivor of stroke. This podcast series is part of Stroke Foundation's Young Stroke Project. Find out more by visiting youngstrokeproject.org.au. Hi there, my name's Paul Burns. I'm a young stroke survivor and I am on a mission to talk to people that have suffered strokes and other traumas and have gone on to absolutely smash it in their chosen field. We'll chat about how they approach life, manage their shortcomings and get a few tips and tricks along the way. Today's podcast is going to be a little different. My guest on the podcast today is Nicola Browning. Nicola is a registered nurse originally from the UK. She specializes in critical care, neurosciences, pediatrics, cardiothoracics, acquired brain injury and rehabilitation but Nicola is also a mum of a young stroke survivor we talked about the impact of her daughter's stroke on herself and the rest of the family and how she navigated those challenges and what she learned in the process so please enjoy this chat I had with Nicola thank you for making the time I I really appreciate it Uh, I'm sure you're a very busy person uh, based on uh, the little I already uh, know about your your history. So, I mean, it seems that uh, you've got a pretty wide ranging history, uh, work history, uh, you know, from a nursing perspective, you know, critical care, neuroscience, uh, traumatic and ABI, like quiet brain injury, uh, rehab pediatrics, and the list goes on. Um, what drew you to those things? Like, Oh, well, thanks for having me, Paul. And it's lovely to support your project and your podcast. I think it's just fantastic. And we both know we wish we'd had these things to listen to when we were on (laughs) our journeys, I guess, with our own loved ones. But yeah, yeah, I guess my nursing career, um, I'd always, um, from being a little girl, I think my grandfather was very sick in hospital with um, cancer and ended up in palliative care when I was probably just still at junior school. So I'd been about eight, I think. Um, And I remember being quite fascinated in the hospital and you know as children do they watch they listen they Mm -hmm. take it all in and I decided at that time (laughs) I want to be a nurse when I'm older because I met some lovely compassionate and caring people that made me feel safe and they were just taking such good care of him and then that continued really that journey through my life my um, grandmother had um, a traumatic head injury um, again when I was in my teens so that kind of um, really triggered my interest in I guess neurosciences and so again stayed on that kind of path of yeah my ambition was to be a nurse one day I wasn't academically very strong at school at all um, so I really had to work hard to get to that point um, mm-hmm. I had a supportive family yeah. um, and I did lots of other things at that time so when you went for your first job I went to work in a nursing home um I did things that I could do um even before I got into nursing um and then I was successful to get my entry to nursing in Sheffield in England and started my journey at 18 um and I qualified at 21 we were the first of the new training for nursing where it was getting more along that degree and academic side so we were like a pilot in that time in 88 um and it was the era of we went to so many very historical buildings that were old old hospitals we didn't have the new hospitals then and you went to every hospital and you got experience across every specialty and in my final year I chose because of my grandmother I think with head injury to go to the neurosurgical neuromedical and high dependency um, Mm -hmm. ward and I got my first staff nurse position there and that's where the journey began really in that neuro space so yeah it was definitely a baptism by fire they call it um but I had some fantastic mentors and sisters on the ward 
it was very different at that time. But because of that, I really um, got a privileged, I guess, beginning in my nursing career to looking after people in that neurospace who needed so many different things, including having ventilated patients and sedated patients at the very beginning of their trauma or acquired brain injury. So yeah, it, it began there and it's never stopped. <laughs> And I moved around different parts of the UK because it wasn't so spread out. Yeah. So, you know, you'd go to the top end and the bottom end, north and south, and you yep. could move around. And And I embraced that opportunity, I think. And I chose to go to pediatric wards and specialize. Um, and, yeah, I did babies and um, wow. you know, work with very sort of sick newborn babies for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was more a cardiac um, unit. Oof. So that was my journey and my that was my main part of my career. And then um, just before I had children, um, yep. I then got involved in, um, and set up a neuro rehabilitation unit with a um, rehab consultant and a neuropsychologist. And so that would have been with all the spare time you would have had, Nicola. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, you know, sometimes I haven't always chosen where I was going to go opportunities arose as well as, as kind of your career progressed. And Mm. when you've got quite diverse experience, it was like, oh, you know, would you be interested in coming and taking on this project? So I did. Um, I was quite young as a manager at that point. So you get your clinical experience, but that management experience to really be responsible um, and working in that kind of independent sector was really, that was probably one of my biggest learnings um, Mm -hmm. of my career but I'm glad I did it Um, I learned a lot and then I had children and then over time we uh, moved overseas um, and did the sea change yeah I I was gonna say um, and then in amongst all of that yeah you obviously found yourself here your background is clearly uh, not uh, in Australia Um, (laughs) and you moved over here with an 18 month old and a four year old is that correct yeah, got... so, yeah it was how so did that two children <laughs> two children and two suitcases is literally how we came to australia in 2004 i actually applied for sponsorship through the hospital because okay. Royal Perth hospital were looking for nurses with my experience in neuro and yep. um, so i actually got sponsored by royal perth and went to be a clinical nurse at the state head injury unit there so again that journey and still staying in neuro was very much um um, yeah, a, a big sea change for us. But having children, I was going to say, but you did it. I mean, I look, I've got <laughs> I've got little kids at my place. Yeah. Um, I know how challenging that having little kid, little people around yeah. can be. Yeah. And you did it and thought, yeah, let's just not? go to another country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Why not? <laughs> but you know, we originally said let's go for a year and see how it goes. But yeah. then after that year, I got offered a permanent position. My husband found work, and we yeah. actually hadn't done as much in that year to travel around Australia um Perth was amazing enough and we just said we've got so much more we want to do so we stayed and we've not gone back and we've been here 18 years now so I mean I feel really privileged I WA and Australia and you know just the people that we've met we do have a Perth family now you miss your own family that's a challenge I'm very close to my family um as are our children but we've had some really beautiful times where they've come they've been able to come and see us we have gone back um to the UK occasionally if I hadn't been able to go back and had that means it probably would have looked different um you know separating yourself from your family is a challenge but community is really important I was going to say, I, I look, I've got a little experience in living overseas um, and I know 
how challenging it could be to acclimatize to i mean yes we both speak english although it's debatable whether you say Australians speak English. Um, <laughs> I've said that to a few people from overseas. But, uh, but um, I mean, there, there's always a culture difference when you move to a new place. I mean, there's a culture yeah. difference between Melbourne and yeah. Queensland. I mean, yeah, we're two little ones on board and a new job. And yeah, I mean, how did you how did you yeah. find it? Was it a was it a rough uh, transition uh, integration, or did you did you pretty much you just got on with it and it yes. all went yeah. relatively smoothly, or a good question really I think I think it 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 changed constantly so I think because my husband and I were doing it together and you know we we did embrace it and look positively on everything we were experiencing and we had to put ourselves out there a lot I think you know you you don't just make friends overnight so I'm a pretty chatty person as you (laughs) so you know I'm being a nurse I was lucky I was at the hospital um you meet people in your workplace um and especially in healthcare people are from all over the world so that that's really special as well and and I I think that's one of the most amazing things about working in healthcare it's not just the patients you meet from all over the world it's the staff as well so yeah yeah, so I guess yeah it was difficult because you're away from your family so what we did do is we had a wonderful um, nanny because I couldn't possibly have done it all you know she became very much our family and it meant I could breathe and go off to work and she did what I would do but I was lucky enough I still had a quality of life that we spent time on the weekend and dad was there so Mm -hmm. I think yeah surrounding yourself with good friends good family and a lovely community and we got involved in everything we could you know surf club and uh you know we, we were doing all of the, you know, getting out to the beach and the river and mm-hmm. um, we'd volunteer in the community and the school communities have always been really great, you know, wherever we've gone. So I think we'd moved every year for 10 years before we even came to Australia. Wow. So we were used to changing, you know, and, and moving around and yeah, it was, it was nice. Um, but it gets to a point where it is, you realize you have settled and yeah. you, your social goes so big and you're trying to keep up with so many people both here and the people you've left behind Mm. that that can get tiring and you know you you do try and that energy as a mum to make sure your kids are settled and oh yeah but I I loved it I did love it and I embrace it and I'm still the same today but um it is yeah you need a lot of energy to keep yeah have you always (laughs) been that sort of (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure if ambitious is the right word, but it's probably an element of that, you know, ambition and, you know, just open to new experiences and opportunities. Have you just always been wired that way or has it been a gradual thing? Or? No, definitely a gradual thing. I mean, my parents travelled a lot and my, they worked hard and yeah. um, they, well, they even were running a pub at one point when I was a little girl. And um, oh, wow. so they were very community orientated people. So I think yep. their values of hard work and being kind to people and if there was someone in need or needed help. So I think that's, that's within my family. We, we've always been, yeah, I guess those kind of people, you don't ever shy away from a conversation. No, no. You no, know, your, your home is always open. Mum yep. always said our home's always open to people when it's going well, but also when it's not going so well. So yeah, I guess I was a bit of an old soul and I'd often go running around and we'd go on holidays and I'd come back going, I've made a new friend. And <laughs> mum still laughs about it now. She goes, Nick, you've never changed. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, because people are amazing, you know, you, every person you meet has got something else to share. And I, do, yeah, I do love, I love meeting new people. Yeah. yeah. So I guess, um, 
you know, that open door policy. And, you know, I guess you mentioned, you know, good times and bad times. And yeah. then yeah. Tw- 2019 rolls along and we've obviously uh, yeah. had some challenges, uh, you know, Beth had a stroke. Um, yeah. yeah. So it was the time where, so we have three children, as you know, Paul, and uh-huh. um, Beth was 19, her sister was 16, and her little brother was 12. So life was very established, and yep. she just left school and was at university studying nursing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, everything changed um, in a moment, really. Um, so I know you know some of the story. I can share a bit more if you like, Paul, but um, yeah, please. Yeah. Uh, Beth shared her people, own journey. <laughs> yeah, look, at, I, look I, I'm, I'm happy to, I, I think people would like to hear it. Um, yeah. yeah that difference share. of a young person, I think, and, and even to me, you know, I, I'd worked in this field for, well, 34 years I've yeah. been in my career, both clinical and non-clinical. Mm-hmm. Um, but when your daughter arrives downstairs one night with horror in her eyes and she can't speak and yep. she's lost her speech, that's pretty much what happened. And that happened with no signs. Um, she was previously fit and well. So there was nothing underlying. She was living her life. Um, yeah. And then the long and short of what happened was I recognized the signs and so did my husband, tried to reassure her. She knew herself there was something you know, very wrong. Yeah. Um, and we called an ambulance and took her to hospital and spent the next sort of um, two weeks in hospital. Um, her speech did return. She lost that speech sort of overnight. Um, and then it slowly started to, you know, reform, but she was struggling with words. And even when she's tired still to this day, two years later, yeah. sometimes she'll muddle her words. Not the other people who don't know, you know, who don't know her history. They no. wouldn't notice. Yeah, um, I, same. Yeah, totally the same. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much what happened. But it was, I know you sort of said, you know, what sort of happened before and then that immediate impact. Mm. Um, it was terrifying. And no matter what knowledge you have, sometimes too much knowledge isn't great either because you're thinking of all these things that it could be. Yeah. I wasn't necessarily thinking at the time at all it was a stroke. Um, I was waiting for someone to investigate and give me a really good explanation. But my did, role very Did you get much- that? Sorry if, if you don't mind me interrupting. Did you yeah. get that? Yeah, yeah, we did. But it took a while to get the diagnosis through. We spent a lot of time in ED waiting. Um, I got a bit impatient because her speech was, you know, still not coming back. And she was really frightened. And Mm. it would come and go. And while we were sitting in a waiting room with a 19 year old at that stage, I don't know. Mm. um, We did we did wonder and we've talked to other clinicians afterwards. And they've said, you know, um, that sort of triage in nighttime and out of hours, sometimes things can be a little bit different. But mm. the, the care that that Beth had and we had in the hospital, yes, people gave you the information. I asked a lot of questions because I had knowledge. So I probably asked more questions, you know, that were appropriate to get the right response. Because I guess it goes to show how critical having an advocate is. Absolutely. Yeah. And Beth couldn't speak. So let alone write, she couldn't do anything. So I absolutely became her voice from the minute we walked in. Um, But that was reassuring for her as well, I suppose. Like she said, at least she knew, you know, I knew you knew mum because this is your, you know, this is where you've nursed. So she felt safe in that moment to at least say, right, I'm going to stay with you. And um, yeah. And when we were up on the wards, we had some great people doing assessments, the clinical team, all the OTs, physios, speech therapists that came to see her they were all very compassionate and the medical staff I think the challenge that Beth had most of the time was that 
I don't think people realize the enormity is, and this is what health professionals can do. She was mm. 19 mm. <laughs> and she was surrounded by older patients. Um, mm-hmm. And I think sometimes the language, sometimes the assumptions that were made by the clinicians, yeah. I would often say to them, Beth, do you want me to be here? Well, you know, they're asking you questions. It was, you know, she was a young adult. Yeah. Um, there might be questions they were going to ask that were private that she didn't want me to, you know, yeah. be there for. Now, luckily, we had a really close relationship prior and her dad and I um, and sister and brother we are a close family mm-hmm. so that probably helped because um, when you know each other well and you're close those things are almost a little bit unsaid I only needed to look her in the eye and I'd know yep. what you might need you know yeah. and you know when she's fearful anxious exhausted yeah. and when she hadn't remembered because she was so tired at that time which you'll remember Paul it it's such an exhaustion and I think there's something she still doesn't remember to this day that were spoken about or how things were yeah. so I would go to appointments afterwards with her because I'd have to prompt and remind her because she go I really can't remember that so you that's know. that's a heck of a load um, I mean, you know, you've just, we've just gone through your career and, you know, <laughs> where you've gone and, you know, your yeah. new country. And I mean, obviously as a bit of time has gone on, Yeah. but I mean, the impact on yourself yeah. and the yeah. impact, I mean, you know, it's great that, you know, advocates can, can help, but you know, th- yeah. that comes at a cost for everybody. I mean, what was the, the impact on the, on the family unit must've been something yeah. well yeah, and yourself. I think, yeah it, it did I think you're on survival kind of mode for a very long time and yeah. I think Beth in particular she wanted to get back to normal she was a young student she didn't want to think for a minute she wouldn't be heading back to her nursing career so we learned to walk alongside her and she would tell us what she needed and you know someday she wouldn't know and the difficult days I think were in that kind of period of Beth had to wait for heart surgery as well because she had a blood clot that went to the brain because she had a hole in her heart that we didn't know about but it's very straightforward surgery nowadays but that doesn't take away from a 19 year old saying you're going to go in my heart and do what Um, so we had that and you were asking about the things that you sort of carry at that time my father-in-law passed away in between Beth stroke and heart surgery and my husband had to fly back to the UK so there's lots of things that kind of go layer on layer and mm. looking after the brother and sister you know who is my sister going to be okay and yeah. constantly explaining my mum who is um, in her 70s is in the UK and my sister and brother-in-law so you spend a lot of time reassuring family talking to friends and explaining what had happened so you're on survival mode but there's a lot of talking and explaining to others and you really are you are in a blur I think um you can only just keep going (laughs) yeah you can only do that for so long though until something goes yeah yeah sideways and I I think that it was the first year Paul once Beth had got back to study she was navigating a nursing career we were trying to be positive and you know she wanted to travel with friends and and do wonderful things however COVID happened then (laughs) so in the middle of this um COVID happened I was at work all this time I took a very short amount of time off um because I thought everything was fine and I carried on plowing through that year but um pretty much we went to working remotely um, mm. from home 
Um, I was working in a youth mental health service at the time. Oh, because um, oh, that's a stress-free role. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> it's. Um, I, I was very, again, very privileged to work alongside a lot of incredible people. Yeah. Um, and everyone was on the same kind of page with, you know, what we had to do during the pandemic. Mm. Um, I was non-clinically, I wasn't client facing, but working with those people and having worked in a mental health setting, you understand the challenges Mm. um, that people face. So I think things crept by about, I think the August, I think it was. And I had had a difficult time prior once previously in my life where I probably did burn out Um, and there have been different episodes through my clinical career you don't work in critical care for those many years and everything's fine Um, and you know that compassion you know that acuity of working in those settings Mm. we don't always put ourselves um, front and center to look after yourself you're giving you're caring Mm. uh, and life's going on alongside that Mm. Uh, And I, yeah, one day I just got really teary. I was emotionally exhausted. I was physically exhausted. And I thought I need to go and see my GP. And I knew what I needed to do and spoke to my husband. But I didn't really listen to probably the signs that were creeping before that. Um, There was a lot of uncertainty at that time. Um, And I probably slid within my love for my role at work. I think when something major happens in life, even when things are getting better and there's positive things um, during that recovery time, Mm. it doesn't um, undo what you've been through during that period of time. You know, when you see your child go through that, even though she was a young adult, you you can't, you can't, um, yeah, I guess, um, dull those feelings and worries. Mm. And I think there was a lot of periods of anxiety following what would happen. What does life look like after this? You know, Beth still suffers with a great deal of neuro fatigue. You know, how is she going to cope with that in the nursing profession that I know what that's like, but she's now learned so much and she shares so much with us. And if she says she's got it, we go great because you do have to find that positivity Mm. and say wow look how far you've come so we were looking at how far she'd come she'd almost just got to this next space that she's incredible to me and and to people that she shares her story with she wants to make a difference and she wants to share that story and her lived experience and so do I but then at that point a year on I think I probably could go okay I can let go now I can breathe and then all those emotions that you held on to (laughs) yeah and, and, and how did you, I mean, how did you deal with that? I mean, I guess, you know, yeah. a lot of people out there, you know, both, you know, in, you know, stroke community and the world at large mm. have this view, you know, nurses and doctors are bulletproof, yeah. right? They get around with suits of armour and, you know, they're the heroes of the pandemic. And, but, yeah. and, and then, you, you know, you throw on top of that, you're also, I don't want to say carer because I don't want to give it the wrong connotation, but I guess it kind of yeah, is you're yeah. an advocate. Maybe that's a better yeah. you know, I, th- with- I think caring. I think I think you've hit it there on the yeah. head because care is in so, you put so many hats on when you're caring. Beth's stroke was a turning point and it okay. really made me revisit why I'd gone into nursing in the first place. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think being human and letting my walls down burnout did that to me it made me actually say you have to stop and it did force my hand you've got to rest 
you've got to recover. And I, I did seek um, professional help. Um, and I saw a psychologist for a period of time. Sure. And I'm very comfortable and open <laughs> to oh. talking about that because it helped. Um, and maybe I hadn't done that enough in the past. And if I had, mm. um, and I'd seen some of those warning signs before, and I'd listened to myself, then maybe I wouldn't have sort of got to that point this time. So I think um, I, I also met an incredible person um, through my network um, and a tribe of nurses who are all looking to prevent burnout, mm. raise awareness of burnout in nursing and healthcare. And they, Athel shared his lived experience and I literally read his lived experience and his story one day and went, that's what's happened. Yeah. Because burnout in my generation, we had debriefing and you mm. had clinical supervision with, um, you know, your managers. But I don't think there was a language about burnout that was ever spoken about early in my career. And I mm. certainly hadn't educated myself until more recently. So it was a relief and he and I have become good friends now and I've done some personal development and some professional development to help me through this period and it's been great. And I think that must be, I mean, that must be very, I mean, you're very, you know, fortunate being having the background that you've got, that you've got that support and you've got that insight to recognise, uh, you know, something yeah, as huge as burnout, and um, yeah. and that from the nursing side of things. But I guess you've also got the carer side of things as well. Yeah. Did you get any support along the way in your role as a carer, or did it just sort of cross over? Because I mean, look, I find, and I can say this because I'm a survivor. Um, yeah. All of you know, all of the attention's on us. You know, it's yeah. uh, help the survivor, help the survivor, help the survivor. Which, you know, which yeah. I'm eternally thankful for don't get me wrong but um you know it doesn't seem to be from you know a lot of emphasis you know placed on you know sort of the the carers and what we can do to support the carers and I mean I heard a great analogy and I think might have been someone from the lived experience working group and I forget whose name it is so I'm sorry if I've misquoted somebody here but uh, I said you know when you have a stroke or an injury or something like that it's like chucking a pebble in a pond sure the biggest splash is at the center but that thing ripples yeah, it does. It and does. I mean, did you find in your capacity as a carer, did you get support around that or was it sort of less so, less as well understood? I think it's interesting because that word carer, I've, I've used that word throughout my career. Yeah. I didn't necessarily see myself as a carer because I'm a parent mm. and I was mum. Yeah, and it comes it, with the territory, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. and But I had, I was very aware of carer stress and burnout and carers because I'd worked in community um, aged care. I'd worked in obviously hospitals and healthcare. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you are very um, aware of what loved ones are going through. And that can be a friend, a colleague, a partner. Yeah. You know, that there's a lot happening when you see someone you care about lying in a hospital bed. Um, yeah. And I've always, when I was nursing, checked in on family, tried to get to know people. Mm. But I must admit, our experience with Beth, and then I think because they knew I was a nurse, she was a nurse, maybe mm. there are, though, like I said about some assumptions, that we were okay. Mm. And then we were asking questions, so hopefully we had the right information. Mm. But I don't think anyone really did say to me, how are you and how are you doing? Um, yeah. I don't really remember that time. But maybe because I also looked like I got it, 
Um, yeah. You know, so if you're not displaying emotions, you know, maybe people read it that we, we were doing okay. And yeah. we were in hospital only for a short time. Okay. But when we came home, um, I think it, it really was for such a long time. I don't think I knew what I needed either. It was very mm. much all about Beth. It was about me making sure what do my family need? How's my husband? He was my support person. Yeah. So I think if you've got other people around you, and, you know, we kind of are a team and those things work well. But there are plenty of families that don't and yeah. you're very much on your own. And I didn't have my extended family. So not having my mum or my sister, mm. you know, here because they were overseas, it does leave a void because they're the things that people do, don't they? They cook your meal and drop something round. And But I had some lovely friends who all offered, yeah. but I probably that's the point that I did start to retreat. And that was definitely the burnout, probably stepping in. Yep. I went to work. I kept home running husband and I carried on doing everything as we were doing it. And then I started to go small and you start to withdraw maybe from seeing other people. I felt yep. quite fragile mm. and a little bit teary. And then I didn't want to go to things as much. Mm -hmm. So Again, it relies on you reaching out to ask for help very often because I think it's very difficult for people to know how to help. Well, um, sometimes they don't know they need the help, but you don't exactly. know what you don't know, right? That's right. So some, I, I mean, yeah, I, it's a difficult one. And I'm now a lot, now I understand, understand myself more and mm. what I've been through. I can put into words how I am, yeah. but I can now explain to people maybe where I was. Um, yeah. but people did do some wonderful things. People were very kind. So I kind of knew they were there. And I think if you just know, it's like that scenario, just say something, there's never mm. the right thing or the wrong thing, reach out anyway. And that's enough sometimes. I think that's a really important point that you, you make there about, I mean, I know I've sort of experienced in, in my situation, there's almost an awkwardness about the whole thing. People, yeah. Want to do, but they don't know what to say. Yeah. And they don't want yeah. to, you know, they, well, do I say something or is that going to make them worse? Is that going to make, or do they, they just want the distraction? Uh, and they, so they, you yeah. get this awkward, yeah. Hi. And so I think to even just, you know, publish that out there, you know, have some kind of conversation. Yeah, if people know you care, just mm. just a you know, hi, I've been thinking about you, you know, and and it I think always so yeah. it does, it does, and people hear the compassion in your voice. There's yeah. never a right thing or wrong thing to say, um, and yeah, pe people were wonderful. And at work, it was the same thing, and that's an interesting part as well that I look back on now. I was so good at coping, and you talk about what have I been like. I've done that since I was probably a little girl, or you know, since I was that age. 18 year old I've always coped I've been You've quite resilient. Been pretty resilient by the sounds <laughs> of things, yeah. and, and I had some tough stuff that I went through during my childhood and my adolescent years and then through high school and teenage years it, it was not easy I had some pretty unpleasant things you know bullying at school yeah. and I think I was determined to be a person that always looked optimistically at life and things can be difficult but they'll they will get better um and I think yeah, yeah. I I didn't really through work I've always been a very professional person but not mm -hmm. standoffish mm -hmm. <laughs> and I've always been quite private and that might be a little bit of my old-fashioned that I'm very private and you don't always feel 
that you want to trust and open up too much. Yeah. Um, I'm always interested in other people, but to actually talk about yourself, like even doing these things, yeah. Paul, honestly, keep, keep work, a couple work, of years ago, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have dreamt about talking about myself and, yeah. you know, uh, even sharing these experiences, but I've now realized it's very, very therapeutic. It's healing and it's, it's okay. And to be vulnerable and to share that, um, yeah, it's a good thing. And I wished I probably had done that at work a little bit more. Mm. Everyone was really, they were great, mm. but I looked at everybody else at that time as everyone's got so much on. I didn't want to burden other people. Mm. And I, it, I think it was burdening people more than shame, but I don't think I was ready to go there. I felt so exhausted. I felt yeah. so vulnerable. It's almost like you don't want to crack. I yeah. can't, because if I let it go, I'm opening the floodgates and <laughs> where's that going to stop? And I guess particularly in a workplace too, I mean, you can have the best workplace on the face of the planet, but no one wants to air their dirty laundry. That's right. You know, yeah. and yeah. I mean, even if, if there was ever going to be an environment you could do it in, you would have to think it would be the, yeah. medical professional uh but totally get it i mean you know again yeah. nurses have got that you know thing of got to be tough like um, yeah and yeah. i think i was worried that people are going to say well what, what do you need what can we do to help and i didn't know yeah um whereas you know i almost think now that, that sort of that experience of burnout and support crew that's why i think us talking about it today is really quite helpful yeah. because had i have understood how it might affect me as a parent mm. um beth didn't have any physical um effects sort of following her or, or challenges you know mm -hmm. hers wasn't physical she has a neuro fatigue um yep. you know and she had mental health challenges yep. so i think there was so much hidden you mm. looked like everything had gone back to normal i think and we talk about this a lot yeah i mean that's yeah. That's a challenge in itself, not to take away from anybody else's challenges, but invisible exactly. injuries are a whole different bag of cats. Yeah, it, and I think that went for me as well. So there's a lot of things Beth and I have talked about now quite openly and gone, mm. well, it's almost quite similar what the carer or the parent or the support person is going through. Yep. But I look at some of her feelings and some of the way she dealt with it, but her resilience because she was young and she's at the beginning of her career. Yep. And at the beginning of everything looks very different to maybe myself and where I was at. So I've learned so much from her yeah. as well um, in this time, but we've been open, but then at the same time, now life's getting on. I'm doing my thing. She's doing her thing and she doesn't need me to advocate for her. She's a strong, independent woman now living out of home yep. and she's about to start her first qualified position. So kicking goals and probably she's at the same place as I now feel like I've recovered from my burnout. I've rested. I took a year off work, which yep. was a huge impact. Mm -hmm. And that was a worry for me. And I don't think I really looked for information on that. How mm -hmm. were carers, you know, did they have to try and work while they were doing, you know, the supporting role, you know, mm. they're trying to raise young family and young children like you have, Paul. So, mm. you know, we've talked a little bit about that because what yeah. was your experience? I imagine it, even though I'm mum and, you know, you, you've got a similar experience, you've got two little ones at home, you're still parenting while you're supporting that other person with life yeah. and life's continuing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess my situation is probably, you know, like everybody's a, a little different. I mean, for quite a long period of time, and there's probably an entire podcast just in this one. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, my wife has become, you know, 
I wouldn't say single parent because that has a bad, a different connotation, but a sole parent. Yeah. Because yeah. due to my issues, you know, noise sensitivity, cognitive yeah. overload, yeah. all those things, um, I've got a very, I've got two boys. Now, anyone yeah. that has two boys, um, <laughs> my boys are uh, eight and four. Um, yeah. And they're two young boys. I mean, they, yeah. uh, particularly the four year old, always going, you know, never stops, uh, you know very noisy um and you know yeah i've got a lot of my my wife has had to pick up my slack on a lot of different levels and that's why i think if, if you get anything out of this podcast if anyone is listening to it i think the one question that we have to start asking is who's caring for the carers yeah yeah because uh-huh. um because without that uh you know what's the old adage about putting your own oxygen mask on first before putting it on somebody else that's i mean right. you know you, yeah. you you can't help um, you know, you have to, a carer has to give a certain amount of energy to the person they're caring for. And if their bucket's empty, that's right. It's no yeah. good for anybody. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean. And, and I think it is. And, and that's been part of this journey of resting and resetting because, mm. yes, I should have known that I should have been kinder to myself. Oh, and yeah. I was easy, important easy in this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, you know, but I have started to take the time to slow down. Yep. I, I have since I was a child. I'm running. I'm always thinking about the next thing. I mm. am. And I suppose it is. Yeah, it's ambition. It's enthusiasm, embracing life, you know, all those characteristics. But yeah. um, wanting to challenge myself, do the next thing. And yeah. I love to learn. And, you know, I'm always reading. And, you know, like I said, you talk to people and it's like, wow. And you can have a whole conversation about a subject that you don't know anything about, you know. You, you're <laughs> such a positive person, Nicola. I mean, you've obviously been through the ringer um, <laughs> on a lot of different things. And, you know, we skated over the surface of a, of a lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot of people sort of say, I mean, everyone sort of says, you know, it, it's important to have a, a good mindset. How do you do it? I mean, to say having a good mindset and then, you know, that's easy to say, but yeah, how do you do it? How, how do you maintain that mindset? Um, I, well, and I don't think it's the same every day. Um, sure. You know, I have good days and bad days and mm. I'm not perfect. And I think I've listened to a lot of people who've shared some great wisdom. Mm-hmm. And if I look back at all the, I can't imagine how many lives would have touched my life in working in hospitals and healthcare. Mm. That I think, I, I seriously think I would have taken something away mm. that that helps you understand maybe yourself that when something like this happens, you know, you still, yes, you know that you know there isn't always a great outcome. There isn't mm. always, you know life's not full of roses but there's so many wonderful people that show me and give me great faith in the world and life and and there's some incredible things in science and health professionals now that so want to do the best for any patient anywhere so you stay positive by inspiration yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah, and, cool. and look, yeah, well, look how far you know science has come since I started nursing. And <laughs> you know, I look at some of the the um, videos that have been shown about you know recovery and some of the mobility you know work yeah. that's being done. You look at some of the programs, research, um, 
that's all really exciting. Um, and we just want everybody to know about everything. I think the hardest thing for me is there's so much out there that's great. And that's mm. why we're both involved in the Young Stroke Project. <laughs> yeah. But we have to be sure people can find it. They can find their peers. They can find other carers. They can find other young people who've had stroke. Yeah. But they can get some hope and positivity but some understanding of today it might be like that, but tomorrow it can be like this, you know. I mean, um, I, was, I was having this exact conversation with my eight-year-old um, about, you know, obviously for eight, I tried to do it in eight-year-old language, um, but <laughs> is it a case of, um, you know, you, you really do become what you consume? I mean, if you spend yeah. your whole days uh, zombie scrolling the age and news.com and reading all about the horror in the world, yeah. Or you can choose to consume things that are, you know, inspirational, you know, and is that, is that how you, is, or is that an oversimplification? No, I think there's always someone you can help and make a difference to. And yeah. if you're, if you're giving back anywhere, yeah. you feel great and, and you get so something giving, yeah. even more. So if you give, yep. how you feel in that process is, um, and it doesn't have to be, it's not about you. This isn't about me. But mm. if, like you've just said, one person hears something that makes them go, ah, I need to really have a think about you know where I'm at and it's okay for me to say I'm a carer or I'm a parent and I'm finding this really hard yeah we're not invincible Mm. um but it is okay for me to be you know down and crying and really struggling one day but I can be positive the next day and go okay so now what's this new beginning going to look like but you do need to rest recover and get help and support because I think the main thing is nobody can do it alone and if we think that we can then it will come and bite you in the bum one day (laughs) is what I've worked out (laughs) um yeah yeah someone else Um, I've spoken to said that there was a you know, in any of these sorts of things, there is a debt. You are racking up a debt uh, and yeah. one day someone's going to force you to pay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it, it, have faith in the world. I mean, I think that there's a lot of stories that people are sharing and experiences about, you know, things even pre-pandemic to how things have been now. And I think, you know, that neighbourhood, that community, mm. you know, that stranger on the train, whatever it is, you know, mm. I think everyone's been through so much. Everyone's story is different. And, mm. um, you know, but you've got to have faith in the world that, yeah, we're, we're all there to make good things happen. And um, Beth was very much, I think that's why we've gone on the journey that we had because we found out about the Stroke Foundation um, when Beth left the hospital and we mm-hmm. had a little pack in information. And she said, I, I think I'd like to do something. I'd like to do sort of some fundraising. So that's how it began for us. It was actually, we ran an event and we did a walk fun in the Stride for Stroke and, um, you know, got a huge supportive community around us and we raised some money to give back to the Stroke Foundation because it meant that negative energy could yeah. be turned around into something positive. It was probably a timing thing. Whether I think that helped, it yeah. did help, but it was exhausting yeah. <laughs> time doing an event. But um, it, I'm really glad we did. And the main thing was we raised awareness. You know, yeah. you've got you've got put awareness out in the community. It does happen to young people. When we did that event, we mm-hmm. had someone who was a little boy who's a little stroke warrior. Yeah. Um, you know, there was Beth at 19, someone else who had theirs at 30, someone at 40 someone at 50 so it showed you stroke really could affect anyone at any time Mm. and how in one community um, you know almost a couple of postcodes 
that that's the impact but there was positive stories to share yeah. and the little boy who um Beth met she actually ended up doing some babysitting for him <laughs> and he really got a real sort of something his dad once told me months after where I just bumped into him one day and he said he got a lot from seeing Beth um yeah. as that older person mm-hmm. and um so you go how that how perfect's that you know yeah, he's this little boy who's just running around, living life to the full, doing everything and anything. So I look at him and go, yep, that's where you realize anything's possible. And, and we should, should we should probably see the world through the eyes of children, I think. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> Although some days I don't know what my four-year-old's thinking. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. There's, maybe there's a lot not. of Pokemon in my experience, and I'm, oh, I'm not sure I'm ready to go there, Nicola. But uh, yeah, um, yeah. Um, I mean, that's an amazing story, I, I guess. And the question I always ask everybody um, when I chat to them is, and I guess coming from a carer's perspective, yeah. you know, if you could offer yourself or somebody that's just had this happen to them yeah. and, you know, give any, you know, key advice, key, you know, actionable mm. nuggets of wisdom. Yeah. And um, I think probably for me is I didn't reach out to the Stroke Foundation or even call Stroke Climb. Okay. Uh, and I, I did it all myself and tried to find out things myself and, yep. you know, would sort of search up things, you know, for Beth or mm-hmm. if I had some questions that weren't answered where, because I think maybe I thought, oh, things aren't that bad. We're, mm-hmm. we're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we know what we're doing, but I really wish I probably had reached out as that parent okay. um, and carer, but not really understood the benefit of Stroke Line and the Stroke Foundation, the support that was there. Yep. Um, so, yeah, that's probably the first thing. If you really do feel like you just need to talk to someone, mm-hmm. you know, picking up a phone and actually not seeing a face and speaking to someone, you mm-hmm. know, and their health professionals who it's a trusted and safe place, mm-hmm. then I think just ring up and have a chat. I think that's probably the first piece of advice. Okay. Um, and it's okay if you need something. Yeah. Um, and if even if you're not sure, maybe someone else has got the experience to share with you what they think you might actually need mm-hmm. um, to, to keep going on that journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, th- I think that's probably two things. And I think I mentioned it earlier, you know, everyone's recovery is very different, yes. but we can still learn so much from one another. And having met you all through the Young Stroke Project and yes, I was a parent, you were people who had survived. And I know Beth has, she got a great deal from being around people mm-hmm. who it was all different, but you can take that wisdom and you can find the, like you say, those little nuggets of something. Mm. Uh, that was really helpful um and because it was yes it it was the tough stuff you talk about the tough stuff but there was so much positivity Mm. as well that was also energizing when you needed it Mm. um which for Beth I think when you're there and she felt a lot of information was more around older people Mm. I think then come into a young stroke space then that started to help and it gives you hope and it makes you think of the future in a positive way so um and I think for me listen to your loved ones you know um we don't have to do everything and we don't have to lead the way. And yes, you go through that period of, of advocating, but it's also knowing when to step away. And I, it's funny, I, when 
in a strange way, I've called it a sliding door moment. But then I say to Beth, how weird's that? That's when that moment happened. We have a little sliding patio door when she came downstairs and that yep. look of horror. It was a sliding door moment where she opened that door to me and she needed me. Yep. But then there's other moments where it's like, no, I'll close the door now. I've left home. I've moved out of home. I've yep. kicked some goals and I'm going to be okay. But you know where I am if you need me. Yeah. And I think that's the important thing. You don't know when you're going to next need someone's support. Yeah. And as family, you just say, I'm always here, you know. Um, and if you don't know what they need, ask them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, I think it, and just, yeah, it's unconditional love, I think. Unconditional support, unconditional yeah. love. And, yeah, you just meet them where they are. I think that's the last thing I would say. You just meet the person where they are on that day. Yep. Good, bad ugly <laughs> roller coaster yep. um, and if you meet them where they are you'll work it out together I think um, so yeah and if it's not you it might be a friend mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's not us that's probably the other thing I would say okay. not everybody wants it to be their loved one yeah I'm sure Beth shared things she doesn't want to share everything she doesn't want to worry us you know, what we were going through, the same with if she'd share with her grandma overseas, she wouldn't want to worry her. That's a natural reaction when something happens, I think, like this in your life. Mm -hmm. So you do protect other people as well. And mm. that's possibly what I was doing too, by not going out too far to reach out. You yeah. don't want to worry other people and say, because you want to be positive and yeah. hopeful um, and say things are going to be okay. Yeah. Um, you know, so yeah, meet them where they are, I think. That's that's great. That is great advice. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nicola. That was a, yeah, that was, there were some real nuggets of wisdom in there and uh, it was absolutely lovely to talk to you today. Oh, thanks, Paul. And if anyone ever wants to connect and reach out, I'm on LinkedIn and, you know, I'm on the um, Genius Network um, support group and the Young Stroke Project. So it's always great to kind of build a community as well. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, we're, we're all out there and we want to make a difference. So thanks so much, Paul, for, yeah, today and letting me be able to share my experiences and have a good you're chat. Very, you're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. This episode is part of the Young Stroke podcast series created by Stroke Foundation's Young Stroke Project. Find out more by visiting youngstrokeproject.org.au. You can listen to dozens of other podcasts on our stroke recovery website, enableme.org.au. StrokeLine's allied health professionals can help you manage your health and live well. StrokeLine is a practical, free and confidential service. Call 1-800-787-653 Monday to Friday, 9am to 5pm, Australian Eastern Standard Time, or email strokeline at strokefoundation.org.au. The advice given here is general in nature. Discuss your situation and needs with your healthcare professionals. The Young Stroke podcast series is presented by Australia's Stroke Foundation and funded by the Australian Government Department of Social Services.